Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entree Architect Podcast, Episode 78. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, you may be in the process of launching your own startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, well, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. Establishing a culture of profitability starts with you. The small firm architect, you need to change the way you think about business and about money before you can foster a culture of success for your firm. Oh, but when you do, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will get better. You will have a happier staff. You'll have happier clients. You'll make more money and you'll, you'll spend more time doing the things that you love to do as an architect. Today on the Entree Architect podcast, I invited the founder and president of AEC Business Solutions, June Jewell, to join me to discuss 10 culture traps that affect firm profitability. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is brought to you by Entree Architect Hybrid Proposal. Learn how to prepare a custom owner-architect agreement for architectural services for your small firm. Visit entrearchitect.com slash hybrid. June Jewell, welcome to the Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm glad you're here. This is going to be a, a very interesting conversation, I think. Um, you and I were originally introduced by Todd Redding over at the Charette Venture Group. Um, we were both jury members at the competition, uh, the Architectural Business Plan competition, which we just announced the winners a few weeks ago at the right. uh, Atlanta AIA convention. Um, if anybody's interested in who won, they can go to my blog and uh, I have a, a post about that. But um, it was Dell Design in, in uh, uh, Indianapolis. Uh, we're not here to talk about them. We're here to talk about June. And um, June, you're not an architect, but you know a lot about us. Yeah, I do. <laughs> uh, you're a CPA and you're yeah. the founder and president of AEC Business Solutions. 
and you're a business consultant to the architecture engineering professions as well as the construction industry. So you know a lot about us as architects and you know a lot about our industry. You're also the author of the Amazon best-selling book, uh, Find the Lost Dollars, Six Steps to Increase Profit in Architecture, Engineering, and Environmental Firms. Um, so I think we're gonna, going to have a, a really great uh, conversation. But before we get into any of that or any of the other things we're going to talk about, I want to talk about you first. Uh, I'd like you to go back to where this all started and give us your origin story. Tell us your journey from where you started in this architectural profession to where you are today. Thank you, Mark. So yeah, I started in 1989. I was uh, in a public accounting firm uh, and had started um, a information systems consulting practice for that firm. And they had a number of uh, A&E firms as clients. And my job was to try to help them find new accounting software and, and uh, improve their automation of their uh, accounting systems and business management. And I had never worked with an A&E firm before. So at that time, um, we had an a small to medium engineering firm that came to us and said, yeah, can you help us find a, a new accounting system? And so I went out and did a bunch of research and I found four or five products Interestingly enough, none of them still exist. Um, at the time, we were looking for something that was flexible and uh, had a lot of features and, and would really fit the way that they did business. And so uh, at that time, I found the Win2 software, which I felt uh, out of all the four products that we evaluated was the most flexible and easy to use. And I liked the company. And so I recommended that product and helped that firm implement the Win2 system. And as a result, I got thrown into the world of architecture and engineering full throttle. Uh, we started having other firms come to us and ask us for help. And in 1990, I actually got fired by that company, mostly because the way I like to do business, I was very into marketing and other things, and they were very conservative. And so I decided at that point, I liked Win2 software so much, and at that point had worked with a few firms with it, um, that I decided I want to start my own business and become a Win2 reseller. And so I went to Win2 software. When I got fired, I called Win2 before I even called my husband at the time and uh, asked, can I, can I be a reseller? And they said, sure, we don't really have anyone in the Washington DC area. We'd love to have you as, as, a, as a new partner. So I became a partner for Win2, and one of my first clients was KCCT Architects. Um, they are in downtown DC at the time. They were about 18 people and uh, started working with them. And at the time, they were completely manual, using a one-right, you know, manual paper-based system for keeping track of their books. And I came in and, and set them up and got them automated. And they said, you know, we really don't have anyone to run the system, we don't have a, a bookkeeper, accountant within the company. Can you, you know, start helping us manage our books? So I did that, and it ended up that I worked in their back office for 15 years. I worked closely with Tom Tui, who was the principal or partner in charge of uh, running the back office. Basically, he was in charge of contracts and accounting and all, dealing with all the finances. The other three partners were individually focused on either bringing in business or managing operations and managing projects. So uh, I worked with Tom closely for 15 years. And after that, um, one of my employees, as my firm grew, I had other employees in my company continuing to help them. But over the last 25 years of, of uh, being a Win2 reseller for 15 years, and then later uh, Dell Tech bought Win2 and I became a Dell Tech partner, grew the company, <clears throat> excuse me, to over 20 uh, employees. Uh, I've been through a merger, which then failed. Um, so, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes myself in business, but uh, I think I've learned a lot from it and have worked with probably, I'd say in the last 25 years, over 500 architecture and engineering firms across the United States. So I've seen a lot. Yeah. And, and you know, I, 
I've found that many architecture firms, especially small firm architecture firms, they they don't they're not really focused on the business. They're not really focused on on uh, building a profitable business. Uh, for a long time, I've I've talked to architects, and I mean they're coming around. The ones that that sort of are in my community because I've been you know ranting and raving about how important profitability is. Do you find that? Do you find that? a lot of architecture firms are, are are not really focused too much on profit? Oh, definitely. I think it's uh, to their detriment as well. And, um, and even in large architecture firms, you'd be surprised. Um, it doesn't matter what size, it's really the culture of the firm that, that really determines um, in many cases how successful in business they are financially. And, and that's my mission and my focus in life is trying to help um, firms make more money and that's what I do. I think it's a combination of being really focused and creative on uh, being focused on the creative side of the business and, and designing beautiful uh, designing beautiful buildings and structures as well as the fact that they really don't get any business training in college or in any of their st uh, studies or education so it's kind of foreign to them and almost scary in some cases. It's uh, you know, the whole numbers game is uh, takes a lot of focus in order to be good at it. And and many of them are just not interested in that part of the business. Yeah, I, I think the creative side of us, the artist side of us sometimes is in conflict with the business side of us. I, I often say uh, profit then art. And that's sort of my, <laughs> my, my mantra out there because I think so many architects are focused on the art. And they, there's in, there's this culture in the profession that if they create great art and they create great architecture, that the business will just take care of itself, that they focus on the art first and then the profit will come. And it never comes. And my, my, my yeah. argument is focus on the profit first and then the art will come. You know, you'll have a great business and then you'll have more time and more money to, to focus on the art and the architecture and become even better than you could have if you focused on it first. Yeah, and there's a lot of disciplines besides just the architecture that are required to have a successful business. And it's not just accounting, obviously, but bringing in new business is, is a skill that they have to learn. Um, how, to, how to scope out a project and do a good estimate. Uh, how to manage client requests and, and when they ask for extra services. There's so many areas that they have to become good at in order to run a successful business. And that's really what my book is all about. It's looking at all of those areas and where money gets lost and how uh, to refocus on, you know, how to capture back those, that lost money. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's definitely the culture of architecture um, that, that they focus on things, so many things before they get to art. In your book, you have um, a section called the 10 culture traps that affect firm profitability. What I thought is maybe we can go through each one of those 10 traps uh, and talk about them because I think that would really uh, lend a lot to helping the architects who are listening to us find recognize the issues that they're dealing with because I think a lot of them don't even recognize where the problems are. And I think these these 10 traps uh, will help them. So are you interested in doing that? You want to sure, go through each one? Sure, I'd love to. Um, the first one is um, quality is everything. So there's architects that think that, you know, all that matters is quality. And so why is that a trap? It's really a trap because, um, and, and I'm going to start by saying everyone wants quality. We want quality for for our projects and our clients want high quality. And really where the conflict arises is that our client can't always afford the level of quality that we would like to give them or that they would like to have in their project. And so it's a very tough conversation that has to be had, not just at the beginning of the project, but throughout the project to try to keep costs under control because um, it, it, it can easily get out of control. And I see architects um, more than almost any other profession get caught in this trap uh, because, again, the creative side wanting to really have an award-winning project can, can come to your detriment when it comes to the financial aspects of the project. Right. I mean, you could focus on a project to the point where it is that amazing award-winning project, 
and then you're out of business and you yeah. have this this amazing award-winning project that you can't do anything with. I'm sure that's happened before. Yeah, I'm, su- I'm, sh- I'm sure it has. Um, the second trap is uh, keep the client happy at all costs. Right. And yeah, the key there is all costs because again, I'm not saying it's wrong to keep your client happy. Of course you want to keep your client happy. A client's not going to keep coming back and recommend you and give you recommendations if, if you're not uh, keeping them happy. But the problem is that in the effort to keep clients happy, and sometimes that even gets put into the value statements of, of companies, that that becomes more important than anything else. And when it becomes more important than the firm financially succeeding, um, it's easy for behaviors to be formed at every level of the organization to start giving away favors, doing basically whatever the client asks you to do, even if it doesn't make good business sense. And so there has to be a relationship with your client that is goes both ways and understands that there needs to be a win-win and that both firms are in business and need to make a profit. Right. And we're talking about the culture of a firm. There are right. times where you want to make sure that that client's happy. And sometimes you sacrifice in order to make sure that client is happy because there are other reasons why you want that to happen. It may be a, str- a strategic move that you may actually sacrifice a, you know, something in the business or, in, or even the profitability, not of the entire project, but of, of a specific aspect in order to keep a client happy, in order for them to, you know, maybe be a long-term client or refer us to other clients, but but to keep the client cost happy at all times, at all costs, will put you out of business. If it, if that's the culture of the business, that all that matters is that your clients are happy, even if the employees are unhappy, and and you're unhappy, and you're making no money as long as the clients are happy, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. So there has to be a balance. And it's that's where the, the difficulty lies is in how do you develop that culture within your firm and your employees to have that balance. Yeah. The next one is something that I've seen a lot in the last few years. Um, number three is in slow times, it's okay to take projects that we know will lose money. And I've seen that over and over again, uh, not only in my community, but in my in my local area here where I I was trying to compete with with other firms uh, and would never go down so low. Actually, I never even reduced my fees throughout the entire recession, but the I was seeing my competition cutting their fees so low that there was no possible way they were making any money, which hurts them and hurts me and it hurts the entire profession. It so really so in slow times, it's okay to take projects that we know will lose money. What What is your thought on that? Well, and I obviously saw it a lot as well during the recession. Um, and it, for it, number one, it causes firms to get commoditized because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're lowering your fees to, to get new work. And uh, there's really two main issues that I have with this practice. Number one, if you're getting, if you're doing this to get a new client, uh, I think you're making a huge mistake because you're never going to make money with that client. The client's going to expect you to stay at that level throughout your relationship. So you're basically starting out a bad relationship with the client. Number two, you're really setting your project manager up for disaster. Um, You're creating a situation where they're a loser from the very beginning of the project. They know it's a loser. So they're going to um, either really lose a lot of money or they're going to get in a situation where they're trying to cut costs and not use as expensive people, which we all know is going to hurt the quality of the project and maybe make the client not as happy. Um, Or we're going to just have a lot of tension with our client. And who wants to be in that situation? It's it's not why we started a business. We didn't want to work on projects where we're a loser and in a bad situation from the very beginning. So you really have to spend the time and effort to find the right projects and the right clients. Yeah, I, much of what I talk about on the blog and here on the podcast is more about more than just making money. It's about living successful lives and being happy as people. Um, and I think when you do that, when you when you take on projects that you know are going to lose money just to get the project, and sometimes it's for that amazing project, that, uh, that once in a lifetime project that you know that you have to get in order to, to take your life and your career to the next level, 
and you and you give them a fee that's so low that you'll never make any money on it, it's not going to work. You're going to have an unhappy client. You're going you're going to be miserable. Your staff is going to be miserable because no one's making any money, and there's so much stress around, revolving around that project. That's right. And, and the project will fail because you'll have no money, and you'll never even have the opportunity to promote that project because the relationship with the client will be so bad. It'll, you'll be lucky if you even get photographs of the project. Never mind trying to promote it or bring in other clients to see it. Yeah. And so it's it's a uh, it's a big trap. Number three. Um, Number four, all clients are good clients. So, uh, you know, and this again, a lot of this got much worse during the recession where there wasn't as much work. Larger firms were coming down in size of projects that they were going after. And so it became so much more competitive to find new clients and new work. And so many firms um, uh, took took clients that... um, that don't treat them well, I guess is, is really the best yeah. way to put it. Yeah. Um, they are constantly nickel and diming them on their fees. Maybe don't treat the employees so well. Um, they're not pleasant to work with. They have unrealistic demands. They want everything for free um, uh, and don't want to pay for change orders. And so, you know, we get into a situation where we start putting as much energy into the bad clients as we do our good clients. And I'm a big believer in really doing some deep analysis of your clients and looking at, you know, where are the clients that we love working with, that we make the most money with, and that we have a great business relationship and just focus on finding more of those clients. And actually, I recommend firing the bad clients. You know, it, it, they're, they're not helping you. They're not yeah. helping your business to be successful. And good clients will find you more good clients. Yeah. And so when you focus on... on um, signing contracts with good clients, their friends are usually the same type of people. And so yeah. you'll often get a very good clients through your old, through your other good clients. Um, there are also times where the bad clients will tell you that they're bad clients right up front. They may not be so <laughs> blunt. Sometimes they are that blunt. Sometimes they know they are and they'll tell you. Uh, other times, you know, through experience, you'll have, you'll have learned the red flags. You'll be speaking with somebody and they'll say something that is very subtle, but in your experience, last time somebody said something like that, it didn't work out so well. We need to listen to our intuition. We need to listen to those red flags while we're talking to them before we sign contracts so we don't have to fire them or we don't have to go through this big, terrible process of of creating this project for a year or two or with these people. Um, Very often those clients will will show themselves right up front and we need to be we have to have enough courage to say no we're not interested in this project right and, and not desperate right exactly <laughs> and and pass up i've passed up several good projects that probably would have been award-winning projects specifically because of the red flags during the interview and and from past experience have learned that no matter what happens no matter how great that project may look with a bad client it's never a great project I want to take a quick break here to talk about the Entree Architect hybrid proposal. Since launching my small firm, Five Cat Studio, back in 1999, we have experimented with many different legal documents and we've worked with and have tested just about every possible fee structure available. The hybrid proposal is is a document that works great for our firm and the way we do business. In the Entree Architect Hybrid Proposal video course, I'll take you through the entire hybrid proposal package step by step and show you how to create your own custom document, an agreement between owner and architect that works best for you and your firm. What I love most about this document is how it's both our proposal and our agreement between owner and architect. The hybrid proposal for architectural services describes the proposed project, the scope of work, compensation, and all the required legal terms and conditions. It completely eliminates the time-consuming step between the proposal letter and the formal legal agreement process. This document provides both in one package, and its super client-friendly graphics and easy-to-understand language keeps our prospects feeling in control without the need for that long, drawn-out attorney review. When we use this proposal package, we sign more projects 
and we make more money. To learn more about Entree Architect Hybrid Proposal, visit EntreeArchitect.com slash hybrid. Number five, number five, trap number five is you can't lose money on a time and material contract. So how come? How come we can't lose money when it's when we're getting paid for all our well, time? Well, that's the material? myth because right. we all know that you can, right? Right. Um, I think what this chat really goes back to is a lack of understanding of how a firm makes money. And um, I have found that in many cases it permeates the entire organization down all the way down to the lowest level of employee. And in a small firm, that that's not too many levels, but um you know the the lowest level employee doesn't really understand what their timesheet is for uh they they uh they complain about having to do it you're constantly chasing people to get their timesheets done uh at the project manager level uh they really don't understand how uh how you make a living on a T&M contract for a time and materials contract to be profitable number 1 your rates have to cover your overhead and the level of profit that you want to have. And um, many firms don't sit and really analyze the costs of their contracts and what it's really costing them to do the work and have insufficient rates. Uh, their overhead may be too high because of either uh, their growth or their utilization isn't um, in check and they're not keeping people at the right billable rate, uh, billable levels. So really, that trap is really just about having to, a better grip of what's going on in your firm from a financial aspect and, and making sure that if you take a time and materials contract that you're covering your costs. The other issue there is putting time on hold or writing off time, which also cuts into the profits on a T&M. And many people don't take a good enough look at that and what that's costing. That is a big problem with small firm architects that so many of us, uh, and, and we're talking about you architects out there all in your hourly fees. When you pr propose an hourly fee, that's what we're talking about, that that you get paid for the hours that you work. And I know that there are many architects out there working way more hours than they're billing. Yeah. And, and they're, and they're negotiating with themselves every time they put together an invoice with not even having the client negotiate. We're, we're looking at the number of hours we're like, oh, we can't possibly bill that. So we just cut our hours in half and we send the invoice. That's not the way to make no. money and that's not the way to be profitable. Um, if anybody's trying to, I mean, June talked about knowing how much money you should be charging, what your rates should be. In June's book, she talks about that and how to, how to, how to, uh, come up with those numbers. So if anybody's interested, you can find that in, in June's book. Um, number six, the trap number six is we do not share financial data with managers and employees. So where it's all up top and everybody's closed and nobody shows anything. Why is that a trap? You know, that's traditionally how most firms um, have been over the last number of, since I've been working with any &E firms 25 years. And, um, you know, I see it changing to some extent. There are more and more firms that are becoming kind of more transparent in sharing financial data. I actually did a bunch of research on this when I was writing my book because I was curious, uh, you know, are the firms that are more transparent more successful? And across the board, that's what I found. I found that firms that share their financial data are more profitable. And I think it has to do with employee engagement, yeah. having employees really focused on helping the firm uh, be financially successful. Um, it's a more honest and open approach. Uh, if everyone is afraid of others knowing how much they make or uh, <clears throat> some of those things, they're going to find out anyway. Or they're if they don't find out, they're going to guess. And in most cases, they're going to guess that you're making a lot more money than you are, to be honest. Uh, and they'll also start to get kind of an attitude in some cases about, um, oh, you know, they're making a lot of money off me and they're buying a new car and then went, went on that vacation. Instead of looking at the true, how hard it is to be an owner of an a &E firm and the risk that's involved when clients don't pay and cash flow issues and having to go out and secure lines of credit and things like that, um, that, that, you know, are very, very difficult in running a small business. And... Uh, also, the other side of this trap is that 
if you have project managers and they don't know the numbers, it's very hard for them to put together a good estimate. Uh, it's very hard for them to really understand how to make the project profitable. And so, you know, this trap is just really about helping everyone in your firm to, uh, to participate in making the company more profitable. Yeah. I mean, you get buy-in from your employees. It, it also helps, and this is sort of counterintuitive, but it also helps during the, the downtimes mm. when things are not so good. Although that's sort of scary to show your employees that things are not so good, but then they'll understand why you need to cut hours or why you need to do the things you need to do because they'll see it coming. If you yeah. if you have a, a, a weekly or a monthly report that you are, you know, uh, distributing distributing through your, your firm um, and they can see it coming and you have a meeting and talk about the numbers and you don't have to have an open book. They don't need to have access to every single thing that you're doing. Um, a report just so they can see where the firm is and, and how the profitability is working and where the weaknesses are. That'll give them the opportunity to, to make suggestions on how to improve those, th those things and be aware when those things are happening. Yeah. And, you know, the most successful firms are having that dialogue. So I think it's definitely helpful. Yeah. Now, trap number seven is our clients. Uh, our client does not want us to make a profit. Yeah, and this is a myth, really, because um, if that is the truth, you have the wrong clients. And I think a lot of firms go into the bidding on their projects with the attitude that, oh, the only way we're going to win this is if we lower our fees. And so they force themselves into a commoditized situation. Um, the point of this trap is you need to find clients that do want you to make a profit, that understand that you have to make a profit, and uh, want to work with you in such a way that it is a win-win for your organization. And so um, it's really about a mindset of we're not going to be a commodity anymore. We are going to make a profit and we're going to find like-minded clients that want to share in that um, type of, of uh, process with us. The, the best brands, whether they're in architecture or not, are brands that are presenting themselves as successful companies. Yeah. Um, and so if you present you, if you show up in a car that's falling apart and you know, your clothes are all worn out and, and you, you provide this low fee and the next person comes in and they're, they present themselves well and their, and their, uh, pr proposal is prepared properly and the fee is higher. Um, and you present your firm and your brand as a successful firm and a successful brand, it's very likely that the better client will pick you. Yeah. There'll be plenty of bad clients who will pick the low fee and think that they're getting a great deal. Um, but the clients that you're looking for, the clients that will take you to the next level are the ones that want you to be successful. Yes. They, they want you to, to have a business and understand how businesses work because then they'll see, oh, if they understand how to make their business work, then they're probably going to understand how to make my project work. Right, exactly. So uh, our client does not want us to make a profit. It's trap number seven. So that's not true. It's a myth. Trap number eight, uh, we can't make our employees follow our policies. Oh, that's a, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, where you see this the most, uh, the complaints that I see from our clients, it starts with the timesheets. And again, this really goes back to educating your client, your employees about why they have to do timesheets, what how important the timesheets are. But it tends to permeate most companies. For example, if you have a project manager, if you have several project managers, and some of them are doing a great job and others aren't, and you treat all of them the same, um, or you let some of them get away with things like writing off a lot of fees or um, uh, you know, doing things that are against the way that you need to run the business, um, it, it's going to cause a lot of problems. And it's funny because some a lot of architectural firms fight having policies and processes. And so I urge everyone to change their mindset about what a policy or a process is. All it is, is that you have found the best way to do something. And if there's a best way to do something, why would you not want to do it the best way? Um, why would you want everyone kind of trying to figure out their own way of doing something? And so part of being in business is 
finding the best way to do something and then getting everyone to do it. And um, I think that's really where the mindset in the architectural industry needs to change is that it's not a bureaucracy if you have everybody following a process. It's just a best way to run your business. And it will allow you to spend more time on your art. Yeah, that, that, it will. That, that if you can create all the things that you don't like doing but has to, that have to be done in order to be successful, if you, if you need to create systems and, and processes in order to, for your business to run smoothly and everybody knows what they need to do and when they need to do it, everybody will be happier and everybody will be able to spend more time designing great architecture because all of the systems are in place and they can just do the things they need to do. They'll have the checklists they need to, to check off. They'll know the policies. The firm will be a better place to live or to work. Uh, they'll have a better culture and you'll make more money. Yeah. And especially if you want to grow, because as you grow and you start adding more people, you have to give them a way to do things or else it's going to be chaos. Yeah. They're going to bring all their bad habits with them. I agree. Trap nine, times are tough, so we can't spend money. Yeah, you know, um, and and my theory is that you know there's going to be good times and bad times. We've seen it over, you know, I've been through three or four recessions, I think, since I've been working in the architecture engineering space. And we just, we know um, that there's going to be times where there's more work and less work. So instead of cutting spending severely when there's a recession and going crazy and growing and having, you know, uh, spending tons of money when you, you know, you're have lots of work. I really think you need to do more of even it out. Right. Yep, yep. So you store away some of that money during the good times, so that during the bad times, you can take advantage of opportunities that present themselves that everyone else can't take advantage of. Uh, like real estate going down in value, there's a great time to buy, right? Um, but what a lot of firms do is times are tough, we're going to cut marketing, we're going to cut back on a lot of expenses that would it otherwise enable you to be successful and, and be prepared to take advantage when the market does come back. And so it's really just a bit more of reflecting and not reacting so um, quickly to what's going on in the economy. We're really thinking forward in terms of preparing and knowing that that's how the it's going to be. Yeah, it takes planning and preparation. It's mm -hmm. something that you need to create. If you create a separate account, I call it a retained earnings account, um, and and look at it as one of your monthly bills. When you're paying your bills, you pay your retained earnings account and you throw in whatever number you decide, you know, maybe 10% of your earnings for that month go into that retained earnings account and you, and you treat it like a bill, like one of your expenses and you put it in there and it's money that gets put away. And then when times are tough, you'll have thousands of dollars saved up in that account. Or if you have this great opportunity to invest in a new piece of equipment or new software, you'll have the money to do that rather than going in, into debt. Uh, or yeah. using a line of credit or, or credit card. I agree. You know, um, I follow Tony Robbins, and uh, he calls, uh, when there's a time of recession, he calls it winter. And he says winter is the best time to make money. Yeah. But you have, to, you have to be prepared for it. All right. Just like the squirrels. you got to put it away. <laughs> uh, trap number 10. The final trap is this is how we have always done it. I have heard that so many times. Right. Well, it seems like architectural firms are adverse to change. And if you think about technology and how the world is changing so fast, if you're not prepared for that, if you're not in a mode where you're uh, ready to take advantage of the new technology and the new changes going on in marketing, um, in business management, and in technology systems, uh, you're not going to be competitive. And um, so it's really just about being in, in a mindset of being willing to change and looking at what I call continuous improvement. Even the best run firms in the world who are making 15, 20, 25% profit, if they're not continuously improving and leveraging technology and social media and all these things that are going on in the world, they're not going to stay there. You know, it's going to be a, kind of what we call a one hit wonder. So 
the only way to stay on the top is to is to be competitive and the only way to be competitive is to be leveraging um, new and better ways of doing things whether it's business management technology marketing etc and and that that goes back to some of these other traps some of them uh, if you have your systems and your and your policies in place when it's time to change and time to to create new systems and policies those things are working and so you can then focus your time uh, on creating these new policies or new, these new systems yeah. or, or getting this new software and this new equipment. Right. Um, and the same thing with money. It goes back to the money. If you have that money put away for those times that you you'll, you know you'll need it, but you don't know what for, when, when times change and you need to invest in that new software and that new training for that software, um, the money will be there because you'll have planned for that. Yes. And so those, those, I think those are exceptional um, traps that everybody should be aware of. Uh, trap number one, quality is everything. Trap number two, keep the client happy at all costs. Trap number three is in slow times, it's okay to take projects that we know will lose money. Trap four is all clients are good clients. Trap five is you can't lose money on time and material contracts. Trap number six is we don't uh, share financial data with managers and employees. Trap number seven is our client does not want us to make a profit. Trap number eight is we can't make our employees follow our policies. Trap number nine is times are tough. We can't spend money. And trap 10 is this is how we've always done it. And I'll include all of those traps on the show notes at uh, entrearchitects.com slash episode 78. Um, I'll also have a link to June's book. So you'll be able to uh, go there and purchase uh, June's book because I think that is a book that everybody should be taking a look at. I think there's a, and there's a lot more in it than just these 10 traps. It pretty much tells you uh, where to find the, the lost money. Where where are you making your mistakes uh, and what can you do to become a, a profitable firm and spend more time uh, on the art that you love? Um, before we wrap up, June, I want to ask you one question here. Um, what do you think is the single most important thing that a small firm architect can do to be profitable? What is the one thing that they really need to focus on? I think it's creating a culture of profitability. And it's about the mindset and, and making sure that everybody in the firm is focused on and held accountable and in many cases incentivized and rewarded if the company is successful. Uh, your employees are your greatest asset, um, and uh, building that culture. Part of building that culture is not just having engaged employees that are, you know, having fun and happy and enjoying their work. It's also making sure that they're all focused on the mission and vision and values of the company, and that everybody is operating with the same intentions and and um, focus in place. And I'm not saying profit is everything, but if you're not making a profit, you're not going to be around very long. So it's really about understanding that business is business. It's my my client Tom Tui, uh, who I again who I worked with for 15 years. Uh, he he's got a lot of funny um, funny sayings, but one of his sayings is, "This is a business, not a hobby." And he had to remind his partners all the time, this is a business, not a hobby, because uh, they weren't financially oriented. So if you're not a financially oriented business owner, find a partner or an employee or somebody that is that can help you stay on track and make money. That's excellent. It's, this, is not a, this is a business, not a hobby. I think everybody should, should print that out and post it on their on I their have walls. a blog post on my blog, aecbusiness.com slash blog. Yep. Um, and it's by, it's an interview I did of Tom Tui and it's called, it's, it's, it's a business, not a hobby. And it's all about his story. And it's an amazing story. I'll find that as well. I'll, I'll link that up on the show notes as well. Great. Um, I, June, thank you very much for your dedication to, to, uh, to thank you for being here, but, but in a bigger, broader sense, thank you for your dedication to the architecture profession and, and the industry, the construction industry as a whole. And, and helping them all be more successful. I appreciate you for doing that. Oh, and you too, Mark. I think you're, you're, you and I have like minds when it comes to uh, how to be successful. Absolutely. I, we'd certainly have uh, the same mission. 
our, our goals are the same. It's just we just want to make the profession better by helping people be more successful and right. ultimately be more happy. Um, how may our listeners find you if, if they want to reach out to you to say thank you for, for this uh, interview uh, or just to kind of ask some questions about what you're doing? How, what's the best way to contact you? Sure. Well, they can email me at jjewel with two L's at aecbusiness.com. Um, or go to our website and have a look around and see if there's any, there's, I have a blog with tons of articles about how to be successful, about marketing, project management, uh, lots of different subjects there. Um, all focused on how to make more money. Great. And, uh, so that's probably the best, best way to start. Yeah. So, and of course, read the book. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, the book, the link will be on the, on the, on the show on notes. Amazon and Kindle. Yeah. And, um, Episode 78. So entrearchitect.com slash episode 78 of links to everything that June is doing, uh, as well as uh, a way to, to contact her. So thank you very much for your time today, June. I thank appreciate you, it. It's, Mark. it's been a lot of fun. Uh, and thanks for sharing your knowledge. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave me a review because this is how you may help me spread the word about Entree Architect and our mission to become an influential force in the profession. I have two great new five-star reviews. First one is from my friend Taylor Schaub. Uh, Taylor says, I'm a current architecture student and Entree Architect is the first podcast I go to when I need some inspiration or just want to learn something new. I listen to a few other podcasts and occasionally stumble upon some, but Mark's podcast is definitely my favorite, consistent, quality, informational, fun. Mark has an amazing podcast for everyone from architects to students and anyone wanting to enhance their day. Thank you very much, Taylor. I appreciate those words. That's very nice of you. Thank you very much for the five stars. I appreciate it. And my second review this week was from DC, D-E-E-S-E-E, DC. Uh, Another five-star review. My wife and I started our very own firm, much like Mark and his wife did. Yes, we did. Uh, we've only been in it, at it for a year and a half, and it's been scary, thrilling, and oh yes, scary. This podcast has been invaluable resource for the both of us. Mark puts out information that is so targeted to us as small firm architects that I sometimes think he's reading my mind. You are a bit psychic, Mark. Yes, I, I might be reading your mind. Uh, anyway, if uh, you're starting out, or even if Uh, you've been at it for a while give this podcast a listen you won't be sorry thank you very much dc i appreciate those comments and the five stars if you want to leave a uh, a review and some stars for me i'd love to know what you think Uh, go to entrearchitect.com itunes and you can leave a review or if you find yourself in itunes you can just search for entrepreneur architect and you'll find me there so that's a wrap for today's show show notes and a direct link to download this episode may be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 78. And this week's quote of the week, letting your customers set your standards is a dangerous game because the race to the bottom is pretty easy to win. Setting your own standards and living up to them is a better way to profit, not to mention a better way to make your day worth all the effort you put into it. That's by Seth Godin, one of my favorite authors. A great quote. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I am an entrepreneur architect, and I thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything i'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm where do we begin we don't even know what type of business to formalize as is it an llc is it an llp like how are taxes i mean the list is astronomical (laughs) 
Season 1 featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There's a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.